All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We have reached the end of the matter. We've come to the end of this study in Ecclesiastes, and I I felt pressure to make this the the best sermon, the the concluding, just sending you off, but that's really not what this is. This is a a sermon that's going to work through the verses and is hopefully going to do justice to the meaning of the words, and and my hope and my prayer is that you'll be encouraged, Um, and if you're not, we'll go back and listen to other ones, because hopefully one of them will have been an encouragement to you. Uh, But we've reached the end of the matter, and so we're going to be looking at at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 14. And so this is, as as I mentioned, this will conclude our sermon series um, in Ecclesiastes, and then so next week we will, uh, Lord willing, look at at kind of the the year and years ahead, and then we'll begin a a series after that um, that I'll tell you more about hopefully next week. Um, And so this this is the, the, the end of the matter. And so let's read the passage, I'll read, read the verses, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll begin. So Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed in the collected, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man." For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this book, for the words of the preacher that we've been thinking through and studying these these past 14 or so weeks. And so, Lord, as we finish, as as we look at this conclusion, I pray that, that we would, by your grace, be able to fear you and keep your commandments better. For that is the duty of all of us. And so I pray that by your word, you would enable us to to obey this passage. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've just got three sections that we're going to work through. So if you you look there, um, first, verses 9 and 10, section 1, we'll see the aim of the preacher. And then second, we'll see in verses 11 through 12, the tools of the preacher. So what he used... Um, to, to accomplish his aim, and then finally, the conclusion of the preacher there in verses 13 and 14, which may be the most famous, other than chapter 3, the most famous verses of all of Ecclesiastes. Um, and so that, that's, what, that's, the, that's our, our game plan, that's what we're going to work through this morning. So let's begin there at uh, verses 9 and 10, the aim of the preacher. And as we come to this, to, to verse 9, the first thing to note is that what we encounter is the voice of someone who isn't the preacher. So if you look there at verse 9, that there's, a, there's another voice talking about the preacher. So this isn't the preacher talking in third person. This is a, another voice. So this is either an editor or someone who's compiled the teachings of the preacher into this book. And, and as, as, as the book ends, as, as this, this, this book comes to an end, this author or this editor summarizes exactly what the preacher has been doing throughout the entire book. 
Now, I won't go into detail here, but I don't see any disagreement between the preacher and this editor. So some people say, well, well they have totally different things, and, and there's, there's no continuity. I, I don't see any difference or disagreement between what this editor says here about what the preacher says. I think he gets it right, and, and hopefully you'll see that. This editor who adds this, this epilogue, this conclusion, um, is right in line with the, the, the tenor of all of Ecclesiastes, and so I, I hope you'll see that. And so as we see here in verse 9, in, in verse 9 we see the, the aim of the preacher. So, so look there at verse 9. The preacher taught people knowledge. Okay, that, that's the aim. He, he, he sought to teach knowledge, and he taught it very intentionally because he did so weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So, so do you see there, there's, a, uh, there's an intentionality there. So his intent is to teach knowledge, to convey information, but he does so intentionally with, with organizing. So, so as we, we come to the end of this book, we can trust that, that it was put together very intentionally by the preacher, and, and his aim was to teach us. To, to inform us. And as we've seen throughout these past months, the, he wanted to inform us specifically about life under the sun. That, that, that's been the topic. He's gone to great lengths to show us what life under the sun is like. And, and as we've noted, he hasn't ignored the difficulties. There, there, there's been some, some harsh reality that, that he's observed under the sun. He hasn't painted this picture-perfect world under the sun. So, so he, he knows what life is like, and he, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He's conveyed what life under the sun is like. But even so, look how verse 10 continues. So he sought to find words. Verse 10 continues, sought to find words of delight. So, so, so words of joy. In, in painting this picture of life under the sun, the preacher is aimed to find words of, of joy, of delight, which would, in, which would imply that what the preacher wants you and me to know about life under the sun is that it is meant for your joy and delight. That, that, that's what he sought to convey about life under the sun. And if you've been with us, we've seen him emphasize that over and over, haven't we? Even though things are not always how we wish, and things are not always how we intend them to be, or, or the way we plan for them to be, even though life under the sun is filled with difficulties and tragedies and unexpected turns, the preacher, in communicating knowledge of how to live, he sought words of delight and so the refrain throughout this whole book has been, enjoy your life. Find enjoyment in your toil. Enjoy wealth and possession while you have it. The words of delight have been the constant refrain of the preacher. And as we've seen, the reason for this, according to the preacher, the reason that he's called us to find joy in life is because that is the reason we've been given life. The fundamental reason that you have life is to receive it and enjoy it as a gift from God. And so his point is, you're to receive it as such. And so we've seen, and, and I've, I've mentioned this over and over, life is gift, not gain. And so throughout the whole book, he's saying, here's what happens when you try to, try to take advantage, you try and control, you're trying to, trying to manipulate how life is going to happen. It's never going to work. It's not for your gain. It's just for you to enjoy while you have it. And, and throughout, and I'll mention more about this in a, in a, in a second, but to help us realize it's, it's temporary, he's, he's emphasized death over and over. Not in order to, to make us sad, but to make us glad for the life while we have it. It's for enjoyment. Life is a gift from God to be enjoyed as such, and, and it can only be enjoyed while we have it. Because, as we've seen, another related theme that's come up over and over is that we're all going to run out of life at some point. And once you're dead, the preacher has reminded us your enjoyment will no longer be attainable. 
And so if you haven't been with us for any other sermons throughout this series, hear me say this today. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how difficult your life is now, and I don't know what you're going through, but regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how hard it is, here this morning, you have life. And that life has been given to you from God as a gift. And he's given it to you for the explicit purpose that you might enjoy it as the gift that it is. And so you need to hear that. Your life is, God, God is gracious and has given you a life to enjoy. And if you want to know how to do that, go back and read through this book. Spend time with the preacher learning from him. Because that's what this book is about. It's about enjoying life under the sun. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution, make it to enjoy your life in 2020. Find joy as you, as, as you carry on in this coming year. And as, we, as we, we spent time with the preacher, as we come to the end, as we've heard from him and we've learned from him, we can be assured, notice how verse 10 ends, that the preacher has uprightly written words of truth. So maybe your translation says that what he has written is upright and true, or he's expressed truths clearly. The point is that, that looking back on all that he said, what he's written is, is true, it's accurate, it's right. The preacher has communicated truth to us. And as we study this book together, it's good for us to remember that he is a trustworthy guide. Because as we've seen, there's some pretty confusing parts. Right? But, but that isn't because he didn't know where he was taking us. It is simply because life is filled with some confusing circumstances. And he's, he's guided us through life under the sun. And he's been a trustworthy guide. And so as you go back and read and reread and study and spend time with the preacher, you can trust his words. But even in light of all the confusion, in light of all the questions, the preacher has urged us to enjoy life and urged that the main way we're able to enjoy life as a gift of God is to recognize, and here's been another theme, is to recognize that life under the sun is in God's hands. So, so, so the bigness of God, the, the sovereignty of God, you could say, has been a theme. So that in the midst of confusion and chaos, we can rest and fall back on the fact that, that life under the sun is under the control and governance of God. There's a God behind all seasons and times, a God who is sovereign, who is governing all of life under the sun. And so he's made that claim. Hopefully you've heard that. But, but I do want to note that even though he's made that claim with no qualms, he, he doesn't, he's, not, he's not shy about that. He has no reservations about, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You can trust him. He's made that clear. And while he's done that, something we should appreciate about the preacher is that his trust in God's sovereignty doesn't prevent him from recognizing the real difficulties and challenges of life under the sun. So he doesn't minimize the, the difficulty that life under the sun can sometimes throw our way. His call to trust God in the midst of life under the sun is not an empty, uncaring, abstract truth. In other words, maybe you have friends like this. They're not helpful, like Job's friends. The, the preacher doesn't say, hey, get over your problems because God's in control. He doesn't say, don't worry about your loss because God's in control. Don't be sad or depressed or, or don't mourn because God's in control. He doesn't say that. He, he believes and he says God's in control, but he recognizes there's real sorrow and pain and depression and, and suffering in this world. And so as one who understands and sympathizes with those who experience life under the sun, he recognizes that confusion can sometimes abound. And so he gets it. It's confusing. There's questions, and that's okay. And recognize that he plods a path forward, and he gives us solid truth, reliable truth, 
that enables us to enjoy our lives, even in the midst of difficulties and questions. So the preacher has helped us make sense of life. Now, one, one commentator noted or notes the fact that human beings should accept what comes from the hand of God rather than striving with it and struggling against it does not mean that getting the Proverbs straight in terms of what they mean and do not mean is impossible. This the preacher has achieved. So he, he's, he's successfully done it. He, he's put it together so that we can rightly understand meaning and purpose and, and how to live life as a gift of God. So, so that was his aim. That's verses 9 and 10. And now as we move secondly to verses 11 and 12, we transition from the purpose to the specific tools that the preachers used in accomplishing this purpose. So we see, we see his wise words, the, the words of wisdom that he's used. So look there in verse 11. The words of the wise, and I think he's, he's specifically pinpointing the, the preacher here, but I think it goes for all the wise. But the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And so the tools we see that have been used by the preacher are his words. He's used his words, and these are words from the wise. And so it's been a book of intentionally crafted proverbs and sayings, and it's been a book of wisdom. There's wise words. And these wise words, verse 11 says, are like goads. I don't know about you, but, but I don't know what a goad is. What's, what's a goad? They're familiar tools or they would have been familiar tools to, to his original audience and to many throughout history. They're, they're tools that a farmer would use. And so this goad would be used by, say, if a farmer, especially if he has to lead his beasts of burden through a field or, or, or to go somewhere, this goad would be this about an eight-foot wooden stick with, with an iron point on the end or this sharp object on the end. And, and, and the, the farmer would, would take his goad and he, he would prod his, his ox, where they're supposed to go. And so he, it poked them to get them where they're supposed to go. So the, the farmer would encourage the ox in the direction where he needed them to go. And so him, the farmer, knowing the plain, would use the goad to goad the plow along its proper path. And so, so, so the preacher says, the, or, or the, the author says, the preacher's words are like goads. And so the point, I think, of this analogy, the point of the comparison being made between verse 11 and the, the words of the wise is to highlight the role of the wise words of the preacher. Just like the goad could incur a bit of pain and discomfort, right? It, it doesn't feel nice when you're being prodded by, by an eight-foot uh, pole with, with an iron point on the end. But though a bit painful and maybe discomforting, the purpose is never solely to inflict pain, but rather always used to produce cooperation or obedience, to, to lead you along where the farmer knows you need to go. And so the, the author is saying the preacher's words, they haven't been very painful. I mean, they haven't always been pleasant. They've sometimes been painful. But the point has never been just to cause you pain. But as we've come to the end of Ecclesiastes, we recognize there have been some painful words. I mean, words like, you're going to die and be forgotten one day. Or words like, you can't gain an upper hand on life. Or words like, you can never find purpose or fulfillment or satisfaction from all of your toil, from all the stuff you do. It's never going to satisfy you. Or words like, you can't control or guarantee what's going to happen. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, not ever. You are out of control of what's going to happen. You can plan, you can do all you want, but you are not in control. These are not pleasant words. In fact, as I thought about this, in our culture, these words are downright painful 
Because we want these things to be true. We want to be able to be in control. We want to have a, a legacy that lasts forever. We want people to remember us. We want to find fulfillment from, from what we do. We want our identity to be wrapped up in, in, in accomplishments that we've done. We want to know what, what, what's going to happen next year and, and what's, what's my future, who am I going to marry, what, what are my kids going to be like, what are my grandkids going to be like. We want to know, but, but the preacher says you can't. That's life under the sun. But these painful, sometimes painful words, remember the analogy, the purpose has been to promote obedience. They've been painful only so that they might lead us on the right path. And so we should receive these painful words from these, these goad-like words from the preacher. Think of Ecclesiastes as God's cattle prod. Think of the preacher's words to push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money or pleasure, but only in the goodness of God. They, they steer us away from foolish rage and mocking laughter, and they spur us on to patience and contentment and humility and joy. This is the purpose of these wise words. And so though sometimes painful, these words are meant for our good to benefit us, and, and we should receive them as such. But notice there, there's another analogy there in verse 11. Not only are they like goads, but he continues, they're also like nails firmly fixed. Now, some people will say that, that that's just a continuation of, of the goad analogy. I think it's a different one altogether that makes a, a, a similar point, which I think is, is simply that, that these nails firmly fixed would, would have been nails that, that would have been uh, a set fixed points that, that would, have, would have secured the tent of, of the nomad. So the huge tent is secured and fixed in the ground, so it's not going to be blown away or, or carried away. And so, so the nails would have, uh, would have fastened the tents. And I think his, his point here is that these words, not only are they like goads that, that, that encourage us in obedience, but they also are set points, fixed points by which we can live. Things that aren't going to change, things that we can, we can base our lives on, anchors for us that provide stability or perspective on the life that we've been called to live. And so these wise words are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. But notice what else he says there at the end of verse 11. They're like goads, they're like firmly fixed nails, but they are also, notice he says, given by one shepherd. Did you see, there, see that there in verse 11? They're given by one shepherd. They come from one source. And while some people would understand the, the one shepherd to be the preacher himself, who certainly has functioned like a shepherd leading us through this book, I think that the point here is that there's a greater shepherd. There's a, a bigger shepherd, a capital S shepherd, who is the source of these words of this book. And I think that shepherd is God himself. I think that's the point, that, that these words have come to us through the preacher but they're not the preacher's words. They've come from a shepherd who is God himself. And the point would be that, verse 11, these wise words have come to us for our good from someone who is concerned for us, which is why we can trust them. We can trust the words, but we can also trust him from whom the words have come, which tells us, doesn't it, about the nature of what we have in Scripture so this is one book in Scripture, but, but I think this, this, this extends to all of Scripture that we have. We have a word from one shepherd. There's one source. God is the source of all Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. That, that is a source, connotation of source. It is from God himself, exhaled from him. It is the source and is our shepherd who cares for us and has revealed himself to us. He is 
the source. And so, yes, Scripture has come down to us through multiple authors, through multiple times, through multiple translations, but none of that withstanding it has come to us from one shepherd, and we have what we need in his word. What a gift we have in our Scriptures. What a great reminder. Our shepherd has, has spoken to us and has given us what we need. And so I, I would just pause and say, do you approach Scripture as a gift from a shepherd who cares for you and desires to lead and guide you? Is that how you, is that how you approach Scripture? Is that your attitude? Is that your mindset daily or weekly? That's why I, I, do, I do want to make a point of application. That's why I printed out those, those Bible reading plans. I mean, it's a, it's a great thing at, at the end of the year when, when we're making, making new us. We want to be a different me. Well, this is a, a, a great place. I'd say the place to start. God has given you his word, and, and we, myself included, we fail to receive it as the gift that it is, right? If our experience with Scripture is lacking, it's never Scripture's fault. And so, so hear this word from, from the end of Ecclesiastes. You have a shepherd who cares for you, who's revealed himself to you, and you, you ought to spend time knowing him through his revelation. And so, so grab one of those plans. It's Like I said, it's five days a week. Um, my, my goal, I was thinking yesterday, what a, what a great thing it would be if as a church we all did the same plan and so weekly we're reading together and then someone someone comes to me and says hey I was reading in this part this week I say I was reading there too and they say here's what here's what here's what I was encouraged by and I said you know what we could have a, a time of testimony so we're all reading the same passages and someone was really encouraged and I would love for you to come up here and say hey you know how we were all reading Matthew 1 this week well here's what God taught me and so I that would be a that'd be a goal of mine and so grab one of those. There's only 30 of them, so I'm going to know whether you all take one or not. Um, but, but again, I think it would be great. And yeah, it'd be great for our church. It'd be great for unity. Um, but it would be good for you also as a person, as an individual. You are, you are dependent on the Word of God. And so desire it, yearn for it, pray for the desire and yearning, and consume it like, like food daily. We need it. Well, moving on to, to verse 12 here in Ecclesiastes 12, having just established that the words of wisdom are, are um, come from one shepherd, the author then warns his son, or, or the one who's been reading the preacher's words as, as, he, as he summarizes, he warns from seeking any other words. So notice that, that this author, this, this editor at the end of this book, isn't adding anything to what the preacher has said. And he's not adding to the preacher's wisdom. He's just commending the wisdom of the book that's already been written. He's saying, this is what you need. You don't need anything else. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these, these wise words. He continues, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And his point seems to be there's, there's lots of voices, son. There's lots of books and perspectives and a lot of advice when it comes to life and meaning and purpose and everything else that's been covered by the preacher. And his warning is simply, beware of going beyond this. Beware of going beyond what has come to you from the one shepherd, and beware of seeking final or ultimate answers from any and every source that hasn't come from God himself. Because he says, this is going to lead to a dead end. You're going to be wearied from the chase because I've just taken you on the chase. The, the preacher has done the hard work for us. He's, he's chased all these other things and shown us that they're all lacking at the end. And so he's not saying, don't, don't read other books. I mean, if you've been to my office, you know that, that that's not what I believe. 
Right? We should read lots of books. We should read widely. But we should always recognize there's, there's something different about what the shepherd has given us. There's one word that is above all others and one word, one book that all others must be subject to. And so as one commentator concludes, be content with what the Bible says. Don't accept anything less and don't demand anything more. You have enough. You don't need more. Well, let's look finally at the third point, verses 13 and 14, the end of the matter, the conclusion that the preacher makes. So we turn to here at the end. This is is the so what of, of the book. All has been heard. Everything that needed to be said has been said, and it's time for the conclusion. So the conclusion comes there at verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So notice that the final verdict, the end of the matter, the entire book, I would say, is summed up in these two words, two imperatives, if you'll notice. Fear and keep. These are the two, two commands, two imperatives. Fear God and keep his commands. This is what the preacher would have you to do. And it sounds quite simple. Right? I was reminded of the time where Jesus says the entire law is summed up in two commands. Again, here, here's the, the, the editor of Ecclesiastes saying it's all summed up in two commands. Fear God and keep his commands. Fear God, keep his commands. Notice how verse 13 ends. Do this for, here's the ground, the reason you're to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Or this is, this is the definition of, of manness. This is humanity. This is purpose. This is why we were created. This is all and everything we're created for. This is the whole duty of man. And so here at the end of verse 13, this is the purpose statement for humanity. This is why you have been given life. I don't want to be overly simplistic, but honestly, when you wake up in the morning, when you think about your future, when you think about your, your dreams and your goals, whenever you contemplate your life and purpose, front and center ought to be, how am I going to fear God and keep his commandments? Th- that's it, right? You can do nothing else. If you do that, you've succeeded. That's it. You don't need anything else. Your whole duty Fear God, keep his commands. That's, that's your path to success. That's your path to fulfillment. That's your path to pleasure. That's your path to gain under the sun. Fear God, keep his commandments. And that call, that, that duty, shapes everything. It shapes the life of the Christian. That's the nature of the God-centered life. The life that, that fears God and keeps his commandments is a God-centered life. And like I said, it affects everything. Listen to how one commentator explains. He writes, quote, Why do you need to be a certain kind of employee? Because you have to fear God and keep his commandments. Why do you have to be a certain kind of child? Because you have to fear God and know that he wants you to honor your parents. He continues, Everything that I do for you, I do because I do it for God, first and foremost. That's the kind of person Ecclesiastes is teaching me that I ought to be. My life ought to be lived for God first. Everything I do ought to be a Godward act. And that affects how I live. Fearing God and keeping his commands is, is a total, it's not a compartmentalizable thing. You can't say, well, I'm going I'm to fear God and keep his commands when I go to church, but, but not when I'm here, not when I'm there. No, it's, it's who you are. 
Your entire existence is meant to fearing God and keeping his commands. Now, notice fear, fearing God, this is not a, in a horror movie monster-like kind of way. And that's not his point here. Fear has been mentioned multiple times earlier in Ecclesiastes. And, and the fear here is as a reverent, worshipful, a life-directing kind of fear, as opposed to the, the person who just walks in and, and utters empty words, if you remember back in chapter 5. It's the person who, who fears God is the one who takes God seriously, who's reverent in his or her approach to God, one who worships God with all of his or her life. And so here in Ecclesiastes 12, fearing God means putting God front and center in our lives, living a God-centered life, making God the, the sun that every other planet of our existence orbits around. And so think about all the topics and themes, all the, the roads that we've traveled throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. God has been front and center through it all. All of life is a gift from him. So through the mysterious seasons or through the unexplainable events, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the face of abuse or oppression that has been covered, in light of, of your coming death throughout all of this, the preacher has taught us to fear God regardless. No matter what comes your way, fear God to recognize that all of your life under the sun has its end and purpose in God, and so do you. This is the call to fear God, a call to live a God-centered life. That's our whole duty, not, not only to fear God, but notice secondly, all, the second imperative, to keep, to keep his commandments, to obey his words, to follow the wisdom that's been laid out by the one shepherd, to stay on the path of, of wisdom and delight. This is what a life that fears God does. When you fear God, you follow, you keep his commandments. And so we, we, we certainly have to recognize these imperatives are connected. Fearing God and keeping his commandments are not really separate things. One leads to the other. The one who fears God is the one who keeps his commandments. And this will be picked up in New Testament passages often. Our love, our fear, our reverence is expressed in our obedience. That's why we can tell our kids when they say, I love you, Dad, well, why don't you obey me? Right? The two are connected. If you love me, you will obey me. The one who fears God is the one who keeps his commandments. Or to put it, the, the, the flip, the reverse, the one who disobeys God's commands is the one who doesn't fear him. Or as Charles Bridges, who was writing in 1860, says, the fear of God is the hidden principle of obedience. So the fear of God is the hidden principle of obedience. So if you have obedience, right, this, is, this is what's visible. You, you, you can see the obedience. But he says the fear of God is the hidden or motivating principle of obedience. So we have obedience you will have a fear of God driving it. And so the conclusion of this book, the summarizing call, is to fear God and keep his commandments. And so, so, that, so that's what we leave with. That, that's, the, that's the climax. That's, that's the, the grand finale. Fear God and keep his commandments. And we do this, we aim to fear and to keep because we have been given life by our good shepherd. In other words, now, now don't hear this because... When I say fear and keep, right, it, we, don't, we don't pursue those as slavish tasks. These aren't joyless endeavors. We don't fear God and keep his commandments because we're afraid. We don't fear God and keep his commands because we might be, because we have been relegated to a joyless, ho-hum, meaningless life. That's not what we're called to do. So I'm like, okay, I got to do this. I got to go through the motions. That, that's not the point. Rather, it's just the opposite, we fear God and keep his commandments because that is the path of joy and purpose. Do you see? Commandments don't limit joy. They maximize joy. Following the path of wisdom 
leads to fulfillment of purpose and joy. You accomplish your created purpose by following his commands. We've been given a great gift. We've been given life to enjoy, and we are to steward that gift while we have it, enjoying it while we have it. And so that's a positive side of motivation, right? Fear God and keep his commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. That's the positive motivator. It's what you're created to do. It's your duty. But there's also a negative side of motivation, and that's how verse 14 ends the book. It's a negative side, or the negative motivator here that, that is given, verse 14 so he's continuing. This is a, the, another reason. So first reason is for this is the whole duty of man. 14, a second reason for, another reason you ought to fear God and keep his commandments is God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or even, evil. And so fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For judgment is coming. That, that's the negative motivator. It's to, it's, to, it's to provoke us to action, to obedience. The aim is the same. The aim is to drive you towards the fear of God and keeping of his commandments. It's just there's two ways the author is seeking to get you to do that. In verse 14, the motivation for fearing God and keeping his commandments is the coming judgment. And we simply have to recognize there's going to be a final reckoning. There will be a final judgment. A final account will be given by everyone here, myself included. And it will be thorough. Did you notice that? Every secret thing will come to light, will come under God's judgment. Everything, whether good or evil, will be examined. There'll be a total exposure of all things, motives and thoughts and actions and words and attitudes. Everything will be exposed and examined and judged. There is a final judgment coming. Everything will be made right that has been made wrong in that day. Now, there's two specific ways that this future judgment ought to shape our perspective on life here and now. So, so first, it enables us to trust that no evil will go unpunished. Right? So, so that, that, that's a right application of this future judgment. When we live life here and now, when things, evil things happen, the coming judgment encourages us that this evil thing, though we don't see payment now, we don't see things made right now, there is a day coming when every wrong will be made right. And so you remember back in Ecclesiastes 4, the preacher talked about seeing the tears of the oppressed and there's no one to comfort them. Right? That, that was a hard thing for him to see because, in fact, the people who were there to care for them were the ones oppressing them. And so he said that's a tragic thing and no one comforted them. And so here at the end, he says, oh, remember back then, there will be a day when that will, those oppressors will be judged. And so, so there's, a, there's an encouragement that we can trust. No evil will ever go unpunished. And so there's encouragement there. Life under the sun, I don't have to tell you, is filled with some of the most brutal suffering imaginable. I mean, all, oh, I mean, the past year or two has been terrible for the Southern Baptist Convention with numerous stories of clergy abuse and rape. I mean, terrible things that pastors and church leaders are doing to those under their care. That is evil and gross and satanic. And so what do you say to a victim who suffered at the hands of a pastor? You, you, can't, you can't fix it. You can't make it right. You can't undo the damage and the pain. And so you, you, you fall back on there's judgment coming so that Every pastor who abused his authority to do that will be judged. 
And, and so there's an encouragement there. There's an encouragement. I mean, I, just in the news, and I prayed about this, there were 11 Christians executed in Nigeria this past week. Said so 10 of them were beheaded and the 11th was shot. What do you say to their, their family? What, what do you say to their church, their pastors? You can't fix it. It's, it's unimaginable suffering and sorrow. You, you just say, I don't know how to fix it, but I know God will one day repay every evildoer. God will judge all evil. And so that, there's an encouragement that allows us to go forward in the midst of tragedy and, and suffering. God will judge all evil. There's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, where every instance of injustice will be made right, where every evildoer will stand before his or her maker and give an account. So there's an encouragement there in the coming judgment. The future judgment enables us to go through life without all the answers here and now. So you don't tell the abuse victim, well, well God's in control, it'll be okay. It's not going to be okay. They have to live with what they've gone through. You don't, you don't throw away empty words because you don't know, you can't fix it. But the future judgment enables us to, to get through it and say, God's with you. God won't forsake you. And so we can get through life without seeing the evildoer face justice here now because we know one day he or she will. But, so that's the one way that this future, just, future judgment affects us here now, but the, a second way that this future judgment affects us is a much more personal way in a much more personal, on a much more personal level. The future judgment also affects our life here now because this future judgment ensures that everything matters. Everything matters. Everything, every second, every minute, every day of your life matters. Your life matters, and everything that you do and everything that you think, it all matters. Life is not meaningless because you will have to give an account as to how you stewarded what you had. It's personal. This judgment isn't just this, this abstract thing. It's personal. You will stand before your maker and give an account. Because if we're honest with ourselves, the, the evildoer is not only out there, the evildoer is in here. And we all will give an account. And so th- th- this, this helps us to prepare for that day. We ought to prepare for the coming judgment because we will have to give an account. Did, did you enjoy your life as a gift from the hand of God? Or did you use your life as something to be to be used by you for your own purposes? Who was at the center of your life? We, we ought to ask questions like this, but, but most significantly, we ought to prepare for the fact that we will not pass the judgment. I will fall short, and you will fall short. You can't do enough good to outweigh the bad so that God gives you a, a, a passing grade. The judgment is a fearful thing, It's fearful apart from the good news of the gospel, though. So in light of, in light of the coming judgment, there, there's two ways that we can look at fearing God and keeping his commands. First, we can say, well, we're, we're going to fear God and keep his commandments in order to, to earn salvation, in order to save us, in order to earn God's blessings and to save myself. This is not the Christian fearing God and keeping his commands. This is not a call to law-keeping as a means of life-saving. So don't, so don't leave here thinking, okay, Ecclesiastes says I've got to fear God and keep his commands. Okay, I'm going to get to it because I don't want to face that judgment. That, that's not the purpose here. 
for those who think this way, who think I, I've got to do it on my own, the coming judgment will be a rude awakening. You will not pass, I promise. Because the other perspective, the Christian perspective on fearing God and keeping his commandments is that we do so, and we do do so, we fear God, we do keep his commandments, but we do so because we've been delivered from the final judgment. So, so the gospel message, the good news of Jesus tells us that judgment is no longer our enemy. It's no longer a threat for us. For Christians, judgment has been poured out. The penalty has been paid, and it has been delivered upon someone other than us. The judgment that we deserve, rightly deserve, at that day for the Christian, we look to the crucified Christ and say, there it was paid in full. And so for the Christian, there's a, a great exchange has taken place. We don't fear judgment. We don't fear God being angry with us and, and going to strike us dead. No, he struck his son dead so that we don't have to fear that. So that even when we fail to obey, even in our continual failure to keep God's commands, there is sufficient payment and grace for us in the cross of Christ. When, when, when we sing that Jesus paid it all, we mean that Jesus paid it all. He is a sufficient Savior. And so for the Christian, fearing God and keeping his commands is a privilege of ours. And we do so as children. We, we obey God not as slaves, but as children. We obey a Father who cares for us, who, who showed his love for us by sending his Son. And so love is the response of our hearts to the God who has delivered us. And so we're called to live a God-centered life, and, and we don't fear the coming judgment because Jesus has died in our place. And so, so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here, but, but I, I don't want you to leave here without hearing me tell you that you will stand before your maker one day. You'll have to give an account for every idle word, every evil word you've said, everything you've done, every, every dark thought that you've had, every fight, all, all that you've done, you will stand before your creator and he'll say, well, are you guilty or are you innocent? Have you loved me as you ought to or have you, have, you, have, you, have you not? Have you passed or failed? And you and me, we will all have to either say, I failed. I deserve judgment. Or, here's, here's the Christian response, I failed, but I have an advocate. I have a substitute. Jesus paid it all. And that's the Christian response. And so we live a God-centered life because of what God has done for us. And so the God-centered life that the book of Ecclesiastes is calling us to is a summary of the beginning and the middle and the end of life as we know it on this earth. And this, this life from, from start to finish consists of coming to know and trust the living God, receiving the gifts of life, learning to enjoy mundane gifts, understanding the major part of God's plan, being guided into joyous and and strenuous activity in the art of living, while, even while portions of life remain enigmatic. And so we're, we're to live a God-centered life rejoicing and enjoying life as God's gift. And so that's my hope for us all. That's my hope for me, my hope for you, that as a result of being taught by the preacher throughout this book, having been guided by the one shepherd, by God himself, that we might learn to love him and to keep his commands. Let, let's pray together.